The Grand Canyon, one of the greatest natural wonders of the world, as beautiful and rugged as it is unforgiving. Deep canyons, sharp, jagged rock walls, and rushing whitewater rapids of the Colorado River all at the base of it. Thousands of people journey here to the National Park every year. But what if we told you that was not the first visitors, nor even the first race of visitors that had made such an homage trip to come and visit. For deep in that secluded and guarded fortress with canyon walls were stories of legends, aliens, UFOs, and an entrance to possibly the center of the earth, and possibly even an entire underground city that's been kept secret for centuries. Join us tonight as we journey to the Grand Canyon, a place of legend and lore, but in ways you may have never known before. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, first question first. Have you ever been? Absolutely, I've been twice. I got to go, um... After my stepdad passed away, my, my mom wanted to just get away from things and, and got a very nice life insurance settlement. You know, he was a retired military and he worked for the post office. And we took a Western vacation and we went south and saw all those things down south and went to Vegas and then cut up north and went to Yellowstone. We went to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had uh, what they call the call of the void. Have you ever felt that? It's a French term. I don't remember the actual French word, but it. When you're, standing so. on, when you're standing on top of a building or at a tall place and you kind of feel this unconscious, like, I want to jump. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan of heights. Nor am I. And Nor am so I. this was uh, the Grand Canyon. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is a beautiful spectacle. We went there and they had wildfires on the northern rim. And I mean, you could just see these little tiny, I mean, like a wisp of smoke from where we were standing. And these were wildfires that covered acres. I mean, that's yeah. just from one side to so the other. So vast, so big. The scale of it is is awe-inspiring, to say the and least. And you talk about heights. I mean, oh, yeah. buddy, that's putting it on all new levels. Now, when you went, did they have the um, the monument that's like the clear walkway that you walk out over? And I think so, yeah. See, they didn't have that there. But there, I don't think there was any way I could have went out oh, I, on I, it. Not, not exactly related to the Grand Canyon, but similar experience in Tennessee. My brother-in-law took us to a, a place where there's one of these bridges that crosses between the two mountain tops, mm-hmm. and right in the middle is a big chunk of glass that you can look down. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm almost certain I I could have sprained the muscles in my hand. <laughs> and my kids were like, "Oh, it's not that big." You know, my kids just take off, and I'm just like white knuckle on the edge of the thing. I, I am not a heights guy. <laughs> But no, the Grand Canyon is is a spectacle. It is just beautiful. Words do not express how vast and how big this thing is. You know, you, you hear about it, you see pictures, and and our little human mind is just you. They can't process that. It is it is gigantic. You can see this thing from space. I mean, and it's not a little blurb. It's a it's a big area that you can see from space. A little bit of the history in in 1908. President Roosevelt wanted to declare the Grand Canyon to be off-limits to all mining and timber operations. Now, obviously, that sounds very plausible. You know, they don't want to ruin this this beautiful, rugged landscaping timbers. And with mining, uh, they were going in there and, and, I guess, just blowing stuff up and just tearing things all to sunder. But upon hearing that this would possibly occur, there were two men in particular, a G.E. Kincaid, and an S.A. Jordan that took a boat down the Colorado River wanting to see just how much gold and silver and copper might be available before the president closed the doors on this thing forever. Now, these men were affiliated somehow with the Smithsonian Institute. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the story. And so they had experience 
with exploration of this type and had credentials in order to make it happen. About 42 miles upstream from the El Torve Crystal Canyon, it is said they made a discovery that was later published in a local newspaper, but then has all been erased from history and definitely from school books everywhere. What they discovered and how it was hidden and kept secret from the world would become one of the greatest possible cover-up stories of all time. From the Colorado River, about 2,000 feet up, on one side of the canyon, they spotted what they described and appeared to be a large cavernous entrance. They did what anybody in their situation would do. They pulled their boat over and climbed up to make their way up to the entrance to further investigate. Now, this is where it starts to get strange. They quickly found a carved stairway in the stone that led up to the cave entrance. Their pulse quickened as they made their ascent. Kincaid reported to the local newspapers that the cave was large enough that several grown men could walk through it shoulder to shoulder and that the height was at least nine, if not ten or ten feet or higher. And at about 60 feet into that cave, it was noticed that there were hallways off to both the right and the left that seemed to be hand-carved. These long corridors led to large chambers that the men described as round living room-like accommodations with spokes, if you will. If you can imagine like an old stagecoach wagon wheel with that center being the, the living room quarters that they're talking about and the spokes being the hallways going off in all directions, tunnels, if you will, off of that round room. Now, it was noted that these rooms had carved ventilation systems that allowed fresh air into and the expulsion of fireplace smoke from down in the large living areas. These rooms and features were also, or they had carved, meaning man-made. These were definitely not something that water had eroded. They were much too smooth. The men said that you could literally see some type of chisel marks but there were areas of it that was so smooth it appeared like they had been removed with what we might say today like a laser-like expertise. The floors were smooth and flat uh, with more steps carved out separating different ones of the rooms and even arched doorways. They had discovered what they felt was an underground city like that had been recorded in the past and true history in Turkey and many other places throughout the world. So this was not a new concept. We have these that do exist. You can research them today, Turkey being one of them. But their discovery did not stop there. After discovering several of these round living rooms, we're going to call them living room-like chambers, each with these spokes or long hallways coming out, Uh, they noticed that those led to what they would call bedroom chambers or bed chambers. They found an exceptionally long single hallway, finally connecting all of this, of about a thousand feet long. And at the end of that hallway, it opened up into a much larger round room yet, a very tall chamber. And in the center of that round room was a massive Buddha-like statue clutching what they described as a lotus flower in one hand and with the Buddha sitting with his legs crossed in the traditional manner. Now, according to the newspaper article in the Arizona Gazette, this S.A. Jordan and G.E. Kincaid left the Grand Canyon back for the Smithsonian to report their findings and to attempt to gain more manpower with a second expedition in which, at least according to the newspaper article, they successfully did. Within just a few months, again with the president trying to close everything up, time is of the essence, they are returning back from the Smithsonian Institute with a large group of 30 to 40 men. Based on this article, the expedition was mind-blowing. Their findings were literally earth-shattering to a degree it would change history and mankind forever. They found copper tools, knives, spears, jewelry, and all sorts of other objects. They also found carved into the cave walls what appeared to be Egyptian hieroglyphics, which would make no sense whatsoever being in America, and it is the Grand Canyon. They also found perfectly polished granite staircases that led deeper into the cave. It was so smooth and polished, it appeared to have been made by some advanced machine or tooling. But as they say in show business, it didn't stop there. 
The greatest find was through yet another deeper, longer hallway, still maintaining the eight to ten foot tall, that led you to yet another gigantic room. This room was very large and tall, and what appeared to be had carved out holes in the walls several tiers tall. Now, these were all about the same size, but they were large enough that a human body might be standing up, leaned back at a precise 35-degree angle in every single carved-out area, I might add. The men described in each of these carved-out shelf holes that they could only be described as giant mummies, each at least eight foot tall in length. Now, I will again state the only real source of information here are two separate articles written in the Arizona Gazette in 1909, just a month apart. The first article simply stated that Kincaid had arrived in Yuma, being one of only two men to ever complete this boat trip up the Colorado River. The article was just a short little blurb and a few paragraphs. Now, the second article was the follow-up before the men had returned from the Smithsonian. It appeared on the front page in a much, much more in-depth, lengthy story stating explorations into the Grand Canyon with mentions of giants and Indian legends, because through the years, if people have discovered these newspaper articles, many calls have been made back to the Smithsonian. And each time, they state politely, I might add, we can assure you there has never been any Egyptian artifacts that have been discovered in the Grand Canyon. We also have no record that neither G.E. Kincaid or the other gentlemen have ever worked for us. As Forrest Gump would say, that's all we've got to say about that. You know, I did see in the course of my research, there are a lot of landmarks named for Egyptian, was it like the Ayaset and oh, yeah. such and such, in, in Indian culture too. Now, you, of course, could attribute that to the fact that the people that found them were into those things, but it just seems weird that you've got this story of is ancient Egyptian-like culture that is found. And I mean, let's face it, if you're looking at different artifacts or different uh, things that they have found in the Grand Canyon that are still there, there's some likenesses. I mean, there, there definitely is some likenesses. I mean, a pyramid shape, for example. Well, I knew this was what you were going to talk about, so I didn't even research it that much. <laughs> I'd heard the story before, and it, I kind of started there when I did my research, and then I drifted away into some other things. Well, I've got some more on this, but please jump in with some of your others. Well, it just wouldn't be, you know, me. I wouldn't be me if I didn't talk about some sort of monster. A cryptid. You know, I I, I looked at, at strange stories from the, the Grand Canyon. And again, I've been there, like I said, beautiful place. But one of the things that jumped out to me was a, was a thing they call the Mogollon Monster. And I hope I'm saying that right. But um, this is a creature that is commonly described as bipedal, over seven feet tall with large red eyes and a body covered in long black or reddish-brown hair. So, talk about another Bigfoot-type creature. But uh, it has a bare chest, face, hands, and feet, you know, like you'd see on a gorilla, some kind of ape. Most sightings also mention a strong odor like that of, and I quote, dead fish, a skunk with bad body odor, <laughs> decaying peat moss, and the musk of a snapping turtle. I can only imagine how bad that smells. <laughs> that smells right. The creature is said to be nocturnal, omnivorous, territorial, and occasionally violent. It walks with a inhumanly wide steps, leaving 22-inch footprints behind it where it goes. 22-inch footprints. Now, apparently it likes to explore campsites after dark, sneaking in and going through, rearranging things, making a mess of the camp. I would assume looking for food in general. And emits what is called a blood-curdling scream, like the sound of a woman in distress, is the way it was described. It does make other sounds like howls and growls and other noises, which is especially jarring considering that when people say they've encountered the Mogollon monster, just prior to seeing it, the woods go absolutely silent. I can imagine whatever sound it makes, you know, if it's quiet previous to that, it's going to be kind of unnerving. Most sightings are reported along uh, Arizona's Mogollon Rim, which extends across the state of Arizona and into the Grand Canyon National Park, with the oldest reported sighting of the monster dated back to 1903 as reported in the Arizona Republican. And this was when I.W. Stevens, why do so many people just go by their initials back then, by the way? That was a big thing. Like, being, it I don't seems know, distinguished, I guess. But, but I.W. Stevens saw a creature near the Grand Canyon with, 
long white hair all over its body and claws almost two inches long at the ends of its fingers. White hair, that's a little unusual. That's different from the regular description. He found the creature drinking the blood of two mountain lions. Two. So I'm assuming- One just won't do you. Yeah, I'm assuming it managed to kill both mountain lions, which means it's not, you know, it's it's pretty tough critter. Uh, When he got close, it threatened him with a club while emitting an unearthly screech. Another sighting took place in the mid-40s, and this was by cryptozoologist Don Davis while on a Boy Scout trip near Payson, Arizona. This is a quote by Davis. Quote, The creature was huge. Its eyes were deep-set and hard to see, but they seemed expressionless. His face seemed pretty much devoid of hair, but there seemed to be hair along the sides of his face. His chest, shoulders, and arms were massive, especially the upper arms. I could see he was pretty hairy but didn't observe really how thick the body hair was. The face and head was very square, square sides and squared up chin like a box. And sightings have continued with one documented as recently as 2014 by a student who was hiking the Canyon Point Trail near Payson. Now, the description's a little different this time around, but this this person, this student, she saw a troll-looking creature that was drinking from a pool of water. She described it as, quote, human-looking, no hair on it, but full of bumps. The eyes were kind of brown-red, thick big nose, small lips, no expression on his face at all, and then took off running like a person. You know, there is, there is a creature roaming around that region. Is there a certain area of the Grand Canyon? Again, the Mogollon Rim, which extends from the northern part of the state of Arizona through the Grand Canyon State Park. A big area. Yeah. Not more of like a pinpoint area. No, huh. not not specific point, but basically like half the state. Well, going back to my story, I... I couldn't stop there. It was like, this has just got too much stuff going on. I've, I've got to know more. So again, as we've mentioned on the podcast, you get drugged down the rabbit hole even deeper. Sometimes you're kicking and clawing, and sometimes you're digging, trying to find a, a further way in. Well, some, some episodes take a little more work, but again, I, I, knew, I knew this was where you were going to go <laughs> with this story. Well, doing more research, you know, this story kind of gets kicked up, I felt, in full gear due to a reference I found in a 2014 article it was published in CNY Artifact Recovery. This is an online newsletter. It states, S.A. Jordan was sent to the Grand Canyon by the Smithsonian Institute to investigate the information that was reported by John Wesley Powell. First time of hearing this name. This is the reason we believe G.E. Kincaid is not associated with the Smithsonian. He was working for a person working for the Smithsonian. So, too far down the, t- the tiers. So, yeah, the Smithsonian, assuming they are telling us the truth, doesn't, they're not going to have a record of this guy because he was working for someone else. He was contracted out. So, yeah, like he wasn't working directly for them. Yeah, so why would they have his name? Now, again, going back to this, John Wesley Powell, they're saying this information that S.A. Jordan had, which is the reason why they got in their boat and went up the Colorado River to begin with, was all based upon something this John Wesley Powell came across. Now, if you look up John Wesley Powell, you're going to find Major John Wesley Powell was actually the first director of the American Ethology Group for the Smithsonian, founding back in 1879. So we're going back there. He also served in the United States Army and was a former director of the United States Geological Survey Team. But there's more. In 1870, he is declared the first white man in history to lead an expedition throughout the Grand Canyon with the aid of Hopi Indians. His project was to investigate and to study the Colorado River in particular. So this man could have easily found something that later got to G.E. Kincaid or S.A. Jordan and sparked that interest. Maybe it was gold, maybe it was silver, copper, or was it something else? To add even a little bit more credibility to this story, the Native American Hopi Indian tribes still carry on traditions. They still have this information written down. And in their recorded history, their There is a legend that their people long ago did live in an underground city in the region of the Grand Canyon, but they did not create it. They had already found it to exist and decided to take advantage of it. Now, for the podcast, when I stumble upon something that kind of interests me that I think might be an interesting topic, I sort of mark it, save it, tuck it away. 
the Hopi believe in what they call ant people. Mm-hmm. And the ant people are said to live underground and are said to have saved us from the end of the world at least once. Came up from the center of the earth, yeah. for lack of a better term. Yes. So, I mean, is that, are we, we going down We're that going road? We're going down that road. Okay. I found so many connections here that it's like, there's just so much, it's like any, any story. And you can be the skeptic, you can be the believer that, you know, we just, we give you information, you guys decide, but. Oh, and by the way, when I say ant people, I don't mean humanoid ants. That's just their term. For That's them. their and term. I think it's just to say that they live underground like ants. Yes. They come up from the earth. But when you have a story, there's always some morsel of truth that sparked the original story. This thing has so many sparks, we're at a fire. There's, you know, and I'm not saying every bit of this is true. But we're hearing this from Native American lore and legend. They're talking about underground cities. We've got this Kincaid and that group that went in, and they found an underground city. We do have the government, depending on what your thoughts are on the government, possibly a biggest conspiracy going on here. Did they segregate off areas of the Grand Canyon to protect it or to not be well, found? I was going to say, I did find references to the Grand Canyon Forbidden Zone, which you know, supposedly you're not allowed to go there. And there's, there's one you can't even have airplanes fly well, over or helicopters. Say, well, there's, okay, I, I have a little blurb later on when we get to my headline that might explain that. But there's, yeah, there's, there's supposedly places in the, that you can't even go to that are completely blocked off by the military. Yeah. And Now, part of like the air, you know, no air fly traffic overhead and all this, there was a lot of squabble on that. I did find something that that kind of made sense, but then the more I read it, it didn't make sense. The sonic booms with the Grand well, Canyon again, could cause collapses. I've, and, I've got a little bit about that in my, my headline. So. so, yeah. Okay. So, we won't go down that. We'll let Bill talk about that in his headlines. But, again, it's like it's certain areas. It just uh, it, it didn't settle well. And, and, again, I started down that road in my research. I had a section on the Forbidden Zone, and I thought, well, that ties into what Eric's going to talk about. And again, we don't talk ahead of time about what we're going to cover. We come in and it's a conversation and, you know, sometimes we bring stuff that the other one's not expecting. But sometimes I look at a topic and I'm like, oh, Eric's going to talk about that. I don't need to worry about it. Yep. Yep. Well, according to some of these Hopi legends, their ancestry found statues and cave paintings of what, I don't know how else to describe it, but amphibian lizard people looking things and giant humans there's also here's my giants i love my giants <laughs> there's always reference of these giants too you know it all kind of starts to make a weird twisted sense of of why this this much has been covered up but yet there's so many different totally unrelated sources first off you know there's the lizard people reference but before you laugh or snicker you know let it be known that lizard men statues do exist in peru even there are legends that these lizard people have great power. Well, there's a, a big uh, Vietnam. There's a big history of, of belief in lizard people that live under the earth uh, with, with great big caves that, that the locals say are home to the lizard people. And, and some people believe these are aliens. Some people believe that they, you know, just existed somehow during the time of the dinosaurs or whatever. But. In Peru, and I don't remember the name of the city, but there is this giant lizard man statue. I mean, this thing's like 20 foot tall, and it's like in one of their major parks, and it is so commonly accepted. This isn't, I mean, this isn't the legend of Boggy Creek, for lack of a better term, or the Mothman over here. It is a piece of their history. There's nobody arguing it. They're like, oh, yes, this was part of our ancestry. It just in, blows my mind. I believe in Peru, they also have ancient temples that have carvings of dinosaurs on them, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, yeah, there are things we can't understand about some of these ancient cultures and, and what they saw. Well, again, I mentioned there's a lot of reference to giants, which I, that's one of my favorite topics is, you know, giants and how well we've, <laughs> why we've worked so hard to cover that up. Uh, but, you know, both or either of these things seems to set scholars and scientists to cringe. You know, you mention a giant, you mention a lizard man, you mention anything. It's just not supposed to be, we're not going to talk about it, bury it in the past. Uh, you know, the Smithsonian is rumored to have destroyed hundreds, if not thousands of human giants that we got into on our standalone podcast way back in the day. But uh, there were remains that the Smithsonian was offering we rewards to collect all of these skeletal remains, and this was big into the early turn of the century, all the way up through like 1930s. 
and people were submitting these. They were taking them to the newspaper office, their local towns. There's tons of, of photographs. There's tons of articles. And then it'll say that, you know, the Smithsonian is purchasing this from the family. And it would talk about the train that it was on. And either it wouldn't arrive, it would get lost, or the Smithsonian would say, I think we got that, but we misplaced it. You know, there's always some story there. But if it didn't happen, why are you working so hard to cover it up? I mean, present the bones. Let's do some more DNA. Let's prove that it is a fake. You know, it's just aggravating that they allow so much of this controversy and so much of this secondhand information just because they won't just present it and let's study it and be done with it. To be fair, though, like devil's advocate here, if they don't have the information, they don't have it. They don't have it. But, you know, again, there's there's two sides to that. Maybe they just don't have it. I mean, I know there are lots of documented accounts of finding the remains of giants, and I still see headlines. I won't say headlines, but but posts on social media and in and, and, you know Reddit and stuff like that almost once a week, probably, that talks about my, giant remains. My favorite, and I'd, I'd have to go back and listen to the podcast, but the Smithsonian published their own magazine that mentioned that they had received certain number of these and had started studying on it. And then when now you call them and you ask them about, oh, we never had that. Well, you published in your own magazine that you had them. It's like Roswell. You know, the first report on Roswell was that we had recovered a flying disc and then weather balloon. Now it's a weather balloon. Yeah. Can't even find reference of the Roswell UFO anymore. I have a paperback book about that somewhere. So anyhow, there, there's a lot of information out there. I'm just saying the lines are blurred all too often, I think we could try to make this a lot easier and a lot simpler. And I say all of us working together, but there are restricted areas. I know Bill's going to talk about some of those, but even the Hopis are, there are certain areas that they say that there have been archeological findings made. You would think would be at least loosely related to the Hopi Indians who've lived there for centuries and centuries, but not even the Hopi are allowed in certain restricted areas of the Grand Canyon, even today. And when they're told why, well, you have ancestors that are buried there. Well, that is the whole purpose. Is it not to, I mean, for the Hopis? I think they'd like to go visit them. Yes. So there's just a lot of this that didn't make sense to me, but that's just an old man losing his mind that's just wandering at stories. Well, speaking of those who have passed on, you know, we talked about monsters, but again, we talk about ghosts too. That's another thing that we like to talk about. And the Grand Canyon does have its fair share of spirits. There's one that they call the Wandering Woman, which is a lonely spirit seen near the north rim of the canyon. She's said to be dressed in a white dress covered in blue flowers, and she's frequently seen on the transept trail. At night, you might hear her crying, and no one really understands who she is, why she's so sad. It is rumored that she is searching for her child and husband, and many believe that her death may have something to do with the Grand Canyon Lodge. And witnesses say that when the lodge caught fire on September 1st in 1932, you could see her face in the flames. I remember seeing pictures and fragments of this story. And stories say even to this day, if you leave a door open in the lodge, it will suddenly be slammed shut on its, you know, apparently for no reason. Now there's, there's the story of Reed Griffiths. He was a foreman on a blasting crew. And in February of 1922, he was crushed by a boulder. Mm. Now before his death, strangely enough, He told his family that he wished to be buried in the Grand Canyon, and his grave is located between Black Bridge and Phantom Ranch. I love those names, too. Those (laughs) definitely lend themselves to a good spooky story. And this would be directly across from the Pueblo ruins. Now, since his death, visitors to the area claim to have seen his ghost walking the trails in the region, and others say they've seen a small light hovering just over his grave. Uh, Most witnesses say that they've seen his spirit when camping around the North Kaibab Trail. So, he's still in the area. Now, Fred Harvey, I, I like this story. It's kind of interesting. He was responsible for the first chain of hotels in the United States. So that's a, a legacy. He is still celebrated in the region as a leader in hospitality. And on the south rim of the Grand Canyon is the El Tovar Hotel, which has been in operation since 1905, and it's just 20 feet from the rim. Oh, wow. Now, when you see pictures of it, I was talking to Eric before we started recording today, I find it to be reminiscent of the Stanley Hotel or the Overlook from The Shining. I mean, it's just this beautiful, you know, resort type hotel just sitting right there on the rim of the Grand Canyon. Fred Harvey's ghost is said to haunt the hotel and the trails around it. 
And most people say when they see him, he's wearing a long coat and a large black hat. Many guests staying in the hotel have left early due to their encounters with the spirit. And they claim that it wanders the halls and even appears in the mirrors at night. I can't think of anything that'd be creepier than that. That would be creepy, creepy. Uh, One night, Watchman claimed to have seen Fred Harvey's ghost, and he walked off the job immediately. Just walked right out and said, I'm not coming back. And, and of course, the ghost of Fred Harvey isn't the only strange story of the El Tovar. There is allegedly a painting that follows viewers wherever they go. I'm not sure if it means the eyes or the painting itself. Just I really didn't find it. just bobbing yeah, behind you. That would be weird. Uh, staff have reported seeing a phantom on the hotel's front stairs, which will suddenly vanish into thin air. And one year during the holidays, a mysteriously well-dressed gentleman welcomed people to a holiday celebration on the third floor. <laughs> Was not a, a member of the hotel staff. Right this way. Uh, one visitor did tell the story of a presence which pulled on their clothing in the middle of the night. And another visiting couple said they saw the face of a gray-bearded man reflected in their television set. Not creepy at all. The El Tovar has some ghosts. Like I said, really, when you see it and then you hear the stories, I mean, very, very reminiscent of the Stanley Hotel or, yeah, you know, the Overlook from The Shining. Sir. Well, my final story, I saw the headline as I was searching for, for Grand Canyon. And I'll admit, there's only one small piece of this that really has to do with the Grand Canyon, but it grabbed my attention. And it is somewhat related. But the headline was basically the serial killer who used the Grand Canyon as a weapon. Now, to me, that sounds like this guy's routinely chucking people into the Grand yeah, Canyon. people off? The story is not quite as interesting as that, but still, I found it to be very interesting. And as I get to the end of the story, strange connection coming back home at the end. So, nice. bear with me here. In 1978, Robert Spangler started down a dark path. He lured his first wife, Nancy, into the basement with the promise of a surprise. And there, he shot her in the head with a revolver. Oh, that's a surprise. Well, she surely wasn't expecting that. No. Uh, he then went upstairs and shot his teenage children, Susan and David. Now, unfortunately, David did not die immediately from the gunshot, and so Robert had to smother him with a pillow to oh. end his life. Oh. Robert then arranged the house to make it look as if Nancy had shot their children before turning the gun on herself. He was never charged. Nothing ever happened. No one ever considered him guilty. No reason to suspect him. It was obvious that Nancy had, again, killed her children, turned the gun on herself. Wow. Well played. Years later, April 1993, his uh, third marriage begins to turn sour. And so he takes his third wife, Donna, on a hiking trip to the Grand Canyon. Now, he had planned to hike a trail that uh, went past the Red Wall on Horseshoe Mesa, where there was a perfect ledge for what he had in mind. This was an area that even experienced Grand Canyon hikers were nervous to hike, because apparently these are very treacherous trails and very easy to oh, lose your some, footing. Some of that rock yeah. that just kind of slides around. And So while Robert and his, his third wife there were hiking, he made small talk with other hikers as he passed them, making sure they wouldn't be in the area when he made his move. And to make doubly sure he wouldn't be caught, they even camped in an illegal campsite that night where no one should have been. On the next day, Easter Sunday, I might add, oh. he pushed Donna off the edge of the trail to her death. Whoa. Now, after pushing her, he climbed down, everyone assumes, to make sure that she had actually died in the fall, and to finish the job if she wasn't. He cleaned the blood off of her face, covered her with a tarp, and then... Sometime later, he walked into a ranger station and told the ranger that his wife had fallen to her death. Seems plausible. He said they had stopped to take a picture, and when he turned back to his wife, she was gone. Now, the rangers were able to locate Donna's body almost 200 feet below where they had been standing on the trail. It's a heck of a fall. And her autopsy showed that she had sustained massive injuries, including abrasions, contusions, lacerations, as well as multiple fractures to the neck, chest, and lower extremities due to her fall. She Pretty fell. self-explanatory. Yeah, she fell. She died. 200 foot. At the time, Spangler was not suspected in the death since it was ruled as an accident. Now, Spangler did go on to gain some fame after doing several televised interviews about the incident and warning hikers of the dangers of hiking in the Grand Canyon. Oh my gosh. He appeared on television shows like morning news shows. I mean, he did a lot of interviews. Now, Spangler would go on to continue to backpack in the Grand Canyon for some time with a variety of companions several years after the incident with his third wife. Now, Donna's death had always seemed suspicious to her family since they knew that Donna had a fear of heights. One, why would she have been up there? And two, was very agile, so it would have been unlikely for her to just lose her footing and fall. So they, they were already concerned. Also, Robert had Donna cremated before her family even had a chance to see her. That's easy. Yep. So Hide that evidence. Now, after Donna's death, Spangler got back in touch with his second wife, Sharon, and after a while, they moved in together on October 2nd, 1994. Now, he had already divorced her. She had taken him for a lot. And that comes into, that comes, well, I won't say she'd taken him for a lot. She got her fair share. 
that that comes into the story a little bit later too. After a while, they moved in together. On October 2nd, 1994, Robert comes home and he finds Sharon in the house unresponsive with a bottle of Tylenol next to her. She died later that day of a drug overdose. Again, this death wasn't investigated. Appeared to be an obvious suicide. I'm definitely seeing a trend here. In 1999, investigators from the U.S. Department of Interior, the National Park Services, and local law enforcement from Arizona and Colorado, well, they began to see that there was connecting the dots here. Yeah, these 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 unexplained deaths seem to be revolving around Spangler here. Uh, eventually, the FBI would also join in, and Spangler was approached at his home and agreed to come into the local sheriff's office for an interview. In this interview, the FBI profilers appealed to Spangler's ego, telling him they wanted to study him because if he had committed these murders, he was such a unique killer that he would be fascinating to give study. It, give the man the mic. Well. At that point in time, Spangler did confess to the murders of his first wife Talk and children. Talk about my favorite subject, me. Well, he, he confessed to the murders of his first wife and his children at that point, but he des- denied being involved in Sharon's overdose death and refused to discuss Donna's death at the Grand Canyon, mainly because he feared a lawsuit from her, her children, who were adults now. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to discuss it. Again, the investigators appealed to his ego. You know, killing several people at once just doesn't make a serial killer. You've got to kill a lot of people over a span of time. So, I mean, unless you're a serial killer, you're just not that interesting. Now, for whatever reason, that worked. With Spangler, wow. Spangler sat there a moment in silence and then looked up at him and said, well, you've got your serial killer then. You're so vain. He then told how he had planned a, the Grand Canyon murder, and he pushed Donna over the edge while looking her right in the eye. He figured... Killing her was easier than getting a divorce. Because, again, he'd lost a lot in his divorce to share it. Yeah. Learn from that mistake. Yeah. Ain't doing that again. Now, since Donna's murder had occurred on federal land, you know, that, that made it a federal issue. He federal went to crime. federal court. Now, by this time, Spangler was terminally ill with lung and brain cancer, and he pled guilty to first-degree murder for the killing of his third wife and admitted to the murders of his first wife and, his two, and their two children. Now... Their defense, they tried to argue that because of the brain cancer, he wasn't in the right frame of mind. Maybe he was misremembering, whatever. He was eventually sentenced to life without parole, and on August 5th, 2001, 10 months after being taken into custody, he died in the Federal Corrections Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri, bringing her back home. 23 years after killing Nancy and their kids. Wow. He finally, you know, received some amount of justice. He did spend some time in prison. Again, you know, he died of natural causes, but. Yeah, when, when it said serial killer uses Grand Canyon as a murder weapon, that jumped out to me. Yeah, good clickbait. I figured, well, yeah, again, well, like I said, when I started reading it, I figured he was just chucking people in there left and right, but it was, it was sort of an interesting story once I dug into it's it. Good lead bit. in, good lead in. So it's headline time. I decided for my headlines, I was going to dive into a little bit more of the Hopi Indian and, and other Native American Indian beliefs uh, that tie in kind of to this story loosely. Now, taken from an online article from the site called Era of Light in May 2021, I quote, Not only did the ancient Hopi believe their gods inhabited the inner parts of the earth, they depicted mysterious ant-like beings and flying shields thousands of years ago. Interestingly, their legends also speak of a great flood, which is a clear parallel to ancient Sumerian legends of the Great Flood. So if we take a look at the ancient Hopis and their beliefs, we will find that this ancient culture claims that their ancestors did not arrive from the north, nor by ship, but from below the surface of the earth. In fact, the ancient Hopi indicate that this specific location, that the Hopi legend is inside the Grand Canyon itself. Again, as Bill and I were talking, Grand Canyon is still a vast area. It's a big area. But where there are mysterious entrances to this inner earth. Now, the stories of native Indians claim that the Grand Canyon was formed by the result of this great flood, which drowned the former third world sent upon those who had forgotten the way of divinity. Now, the Hopi cosmology specifies that this is the place where the Hopi emerged from the underground shelter after the flood had destroyed the third world. This is the terms that the, that the Hopi are using, the third world. In fact, there are numerous theories that suggest that there are numerous entry points located across the Grand Canyon. 
and one of them is an honored in a ceremony as the dwelling of the ancient parental race. Further stories indicate that this is uh, way in the distant past. The ancient Hopis were assisted by a mysterious-like being, commonly referred to simply as insects, ants, creatures that inhabited the regions of the inner world. As, as Bill had alluded to, not this high-bred <laughs> ant-man, half-human kind of thing, but just truly insects. I mean, literally the, the ants and, and things of the region. The ancient Hopi speak of their deities as these ant people that they burrowed beneath the ground. Now, this could just be like miners that just, you know, they're people that just lived underground and they called them loosely ant people because as you would dig around through a mound, you know, you see an anthill and you would kind of relate that. Well, it's like I said, I don't think they meant, yeah, monstrous ant people, although that would be a fascinating story. But yeah, just an, an ancestor, a predecessor, or, or some sort of race that, and again, I believe they, according to some of the stuff I've read, they have saved us from utter destruction more than once. Well, here in this example, the flood, you know, kind of deal. In fact, some of the other petroglyphs that were found uh, in the area of Arizona they were created by an ancient Hopi that depicts an enigmatic being with antennas offering the idea of how these strange ant men looked like. Some people now say that maybe those were true antennas and possibly space travelers, time travelers, and that they were possibly like a radio and an antenna stuck up. But because they lived underground, the Hopi adopted that these are ant people. It looks like they have antennas coming out of their head. Maybe they were headphones or something to that degree. I, I, I don't know. The fact is that this goes back centuries and centuries and centuries ago. However, just as the ancient Hopi, there's another type of Indian. I'll probably butcher this, but I believe it's Maxi, Maxu Indians. They're indigenous people who live in the Amazon and in countries such as Brazil, Guana, Venezuela, they also speak of this hollow earth and how it is so real. Hollow earth, according to the Maxali Indians of the Amazon, there's an entire world inside our planet. And again, we've talked about this on some of our, our back podcasts, but according to the Maxaxi, however you pronounce it, I'm sorry, Maxaxi Indians, they are descendants of what is called the sun's children the creator of fire and disease, and the protectors of the inner earth. Until the year 1907, the Moxoxes would enter some sort of a cavern system and travel from 13 to 15 days into the center of the earth until the area that they, they worshipped at or practiced at was reached. It is there at the other side of the world, as they refer it, in the inner earth is where the giants live, creatures that have about three to four meters in height. And as you can see, there seem to be a lot of conclusive indicators that a place called the inner earth, hollow earth, may have or may still exist. And again, we, we talked a lot about hollow earth in the past, but this I kind of wanted to bring back around with the headlines because it talked about the Hopis and again, the reference to the ant people and what that could mean. Just very interesting history that you would never crack a school book and find any reference to this. Now, whether you believe it or not, it is history. I mean, there are recordings, there's news clippings, there's, you know, so believe what you want, but yeah, you're not going to find this in Mr. Brandstetter's uh, history books in <laughs> class or whatever. What do they call it? Hidden history or lost history. I have a, I have a whole book at home that's about things like that, like stuff you won't read in the history books. So my headline is from travel.com or thetravel.com, I'm sorry, by Claudia Sacamani, dated December 22nd, 2018. It's a little older, but it was just 26 odd things about the Grand Canyon. That seems like a lot. To be fair, I've trimmed it down to about 13, just to kind of not have too much going on, not go on too long. Plus, the original article had some things that kind of felt like duplicates, some that just weren't that interesting, really. And then it had a number 15, but then it didn't have anything beside number 15. So, I mean, <laughs> they only had 25. Where's their proofreader? So number 13, it's bigger than Rhode Island at approximately 1,900 square miles, while Rhode Island is only about 1,200 square miles. Number 12, the canyon was once a holy land, which we kind of touched on. 
Uh, over 3,000 years ago, the canyon was inhabited by its very first civilization, which we will now call the Pueblo Indians, and it is believed that they deemed it a holy land. Number 11, the FFA was created because of the Grand Canyon. So that's part of what I was talking about earlier. In the 1950s, pilots would go off-route to explore the aerial view of the canyon, resulting in several plane collisions. Oh. Apparently, they would fly over and, and not be authorized to do so. and Do a little in, sightseeing. In, in, in the, you know, they, they ended up colliding. As a matter of fact, if I, I didn't touch on it, but there's actually a lot of ghost stories related to that where planes had collided and crashed. And, but that's also why the United States decided needed regulations to avoid any further tragedies over the Grand Canyon. Uh, number 10. The cleanest air in the United States is found in the Grand Canyon. It is so pure because as a national park, it is highly protected by the government. So pollution, littering, and other environmental harm is prohibited. Number nine, the Grand Canyon is still growing. And scientists have concluded that the canyon was created due to erosion by the Colorado River, which continues to erode the canyon even to this day. Number eight, I think Eric mentioned this earlier, it is one of the seven natural wonders of the world. Number seven, a man once kayaked the entirety of the Grand Canyon. Lonnie Bedwell was a brave Navy veteran who had lost his eyesight due to a hunting mishap. Team River Runner is a kayaking organization that helps wounded veterans, and they were instrumental in helping him succeed in this monumental task. He began kayaking two weeks before his attempt, so he wasn't even an experienced kayaker this time, but made the 226-mile journey down the Colorado River successfully with their help. And blind. And blind. Wow. Hats off. Number six, it's not the world's deepest canyon. It is beaten by the Catahuasi Canyon in Peru and the Kali Gandaki Gorge in Nepal. They're both deeper than the Grand Canyon. Number five, keep an eye out for pink snakes. There is a strange species that's about 16 to 54 inches long, and they are scientifically referred to as Cortalis oregonus abyssus, and they're only found in the Grand Canyon. Like a type of coral snake. Number four, it creates its own weather. And the Grand Canyon's weather differs depending on where you are inside of it. Elevation, of course, alters the weather tremendously, meaning depending on how deep you are, certain areas will have different weather. And fun fact, there is only an eight-mile difference between the coldest point and the hottest point in the Grand Canyon, where they've been documented for the record. Huh. Number three, it has many fossils, but no dinosaur bones. There has never been a single dinosaur fossil found in the Grand Canyon. Despite never finding any dinosaur fossils, many other fossils have been found in the Grand Canyon, including those of marine animals that date back to over a billion years ago. Doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming most of it must have been underwater. You know, I have a lot of dinosaurs roaming around But some dinosaurs lived in the water. Number two, the canyon encompasses many different ecosystems. The Grand Canyon is huge and supports lots of different species, considering its large range in temperatures. The canyon can house many different kinds of animals and plants, with over 70 different known mammals calling the canyon home as well as over 47 reptile species and 250 bird species. And aside from animals, there's over 1,750 plant species found in the Grand Canyon. And number one, the most dangerous animal in the Grand Canyon, is the rock squirrel. Do tell. It is the most dangerous animal you'll encounter in the canyon because they become accustomed to human interaction due to constantly being fed by tourists. (laughs) And they have a mighty mean bite when provoked. So you don't feed them when squirrels attack. All right. I got a question for you, Bill. I know you like to go out and you hike. So let's assume that you're doing just that on one of these nice fall afternoons and you encounter like right out of the pages of a comic book with Indiana Jones, a strange cavern entrance, one that has clearly carved steps leading down to it. And I know you're going to go to it because (laughs) let's face it, I know you. As you approach it a little closer, on one side is an ant-like man standing guard and on the opposite a lizard person statue that looks like there's no doors there's just vines and shrub what are you gonna do i'm gonna explore a little bit of course you are i I would be curious so i can't blame those guys for going down the river and checking that out absolutely not so you go in and let's say you got your cell phone because i'm like thank goodness (laughs) we have a flashlight there on our cell phones and you step in and you notice hieroglyphs carved, flying saucer-shaped Egyptian hieroglyphs. And let's say it's right here in good old Missouri. It makes about as much sense as being <laughs> in the Grand Canyon. Now what are you going to do? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm taking pictures. That's what the cell phone's for. Okay. As best I can. I don't know. Like, I'm going to look around. I'm going to explore. How deep are you going to go back in this cave? How long will your well, cell phone battery on the last? Phone. Yeah, I got to make sure I can get out and still be able to see. I'm probably going to come back at some point, but, I mean, you really... 
you have to tell somebody at some point. You have to tell the authorities, right? I would, I mean, yeah, you definitely, you got to document it because let's face it, so many of those crazy stories end up, I'll go back to it another time and then you can't ever find it again. It's lost forever. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed a page that's already been removed out of your history books (laughs) that we decided to share back with you tonight with the Grand Canyon Mysteries. Thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this. Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. We also do not have any record of either a GE8, GE Kincaid, or lost the other dude's name. Bob. Bob. I'll just do this. Most sightings also mention a strong order. Order. Now, this was an area that even experienced grand hiking. What? Grand hiking. Grand hiking. Uh, in this interview, the FBI profilers appeal. The FBI pro. Booth. <laughs> certain areas will have different area certain areas will have different area. the most dangerous animal dangerous dangerous I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together uh, Alex Tudor you can almost call him our producer at this point Sarah Tudor who also helps with some of the technical stuff I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>